You're listening to My Name Is My Name with APS. On today's show, there are three talks, uh, one by Alex Dublay, another by Daniel Coluciello Barber, and a final one by myself. These are the papers that we gave at the University of California, Berkeley, um, back in May, which was the first workshop that we did Um, working through some ideas that are going to hopefully go into a book. I'll say a little bit more about that project in just a minute. But the talks that you're going to hear um, all take very seriously ramifications of the critique of the secular that we find in anthropology, specifically the ramifications that this anthropological moment has for philosophy or or thinking in general. Um, Hence the name of the meeting was Non-Philosophy and the Critique of the Secular. Now, the workshop was designed to present these very programmatic papers that presented theses um, that we could then hear back from the audience going to Berkeley with uh, these these papers, um, trying to respond to stuff that's happening in anthropology was really important because that's one of the centers of this kind of anthropology that takes very seriously uh, critiques of the secular. And that discussion was invaluable for all three of us. Unfortunately, because of the limitations of my equipment, uh, we couldn't really record those discussions or, you know, we didn't want to put up people's uh, uh, remarks without their permission. So we only have here the papers, which I hope you will find interesting. If you do find it interesting and you want to see how we develop these ideas, we are planning to have a couple more of these workshops um, before completing the manuscript that will eventually come out of them. However, because all three of us are in somewhat precarious positions, myself less so, but still not at a college that uh, supports research with a a great deal of money, we have turned to our community to see if we can crowdsource um, some of the funding needed. Now, uh, please understand that none of this will be going to us as profit. It's just to cover the costs of doing these workshops. And most of it is airfare since, you know, we tend to travel pretty cheaply. Though we also wanted to include a certain amount of money to pay a fourth person who may act as editor for a conversation, and we want to make sure that work is properly honored. If uh, you are willing to help support us and you're able to, or you have some rich, gullible friends that you think you might be able to convince to help support us, please do go to our GoFundMe page at GoFundMe.com slash XEBFZW or you can click the link that is on the Tumblr site. I think the book is um, trying to do something experimental. Uh, it's going to be set up somewhat like a debate, um, and granted that debate will be over so-called minor differences, but that's oftentimes where the important distinctions are made. Um, you'll get a sense of the project from these talks, and if you can support us, we really do appreciate it. Um, if you can't, um, but you're still finding this interesting, that's awesome too. Alex's work and Dan's work are both really fantastic, and it's been very exciting for me to be working with them. And I think you'll get a sense of the project from these talks. So thanks for listening. If you can support us, please do. Welcome, everybody. I've been told I should start. 
Uh, so, welcome uh, to the to this non-philosophy and critique of the secular event. Uh, for those of you who don't know me in this room, I'm Alex Dubelay. I'm a lecturer here in rhetoric and in the program for religious studies, and I got my PhD here in rhetoric uh, a year ago. I'm really happy to welcome Anthony Paul Smith and Dan Barber, my good friends and some of the people I like to think most with uh, in the world to the uh, Berkeley campus. Uh, for those who don't know who they are, let me give you kind of the official academic rundown of who they are. Um, so Dan, Daniel Coluccello Barber is a fellow at ICI Berlin Institute for Cultural Inquiry. He's the author of two books, the Deleuze and the Naming of God, Post-Secularism and the Future of Imminence from Edinburgh, and I think the paper bag has just come out. And uh, on Diaspora, Christianity, Religion, Secularity from Cascade in 2011, and he's currently working on a book or two books on the question of conversion. Anthony Paul Smith is an assistant professor at the Department of Religion at LaSalle University in Philadelphia. He's the author of A Non-Philosophical uh, Theory of Nature, Ecologies of Thought, which is from Paul Grave and uh, forthcoming Francois Laruelle's Principles of Non-Philosophy, A Critical Introduction and Guide. And Laruelle, A Stranger Thought, from Polity next year, or end of this year. Uh, he's also the co-editor of two, two edited volumes. One is After the Post-Secular and the Postmodern: New Essays in the Kind of Philosophy of Religion, and also Laruelle, A Non-Philosophy non from Edinburgh in 2012. And he has published a number of Laruel translator, uh, translations, including Future Christ and Principles of Non-Philosophy and a number of other ones. So before we, like, uh, before we properly begin, I want to offer some kind of brief introductory thoughts on the event, like it, its name, how it came about, and its structure. I'm not going to go too deeply, but perhaps I could just start with the name, Non-Philosophy and the Critique of the Secular was meant to evoke uh, or kind of propose exploring the, the way that the status and operations of uh, contemporary philosophy, but mostly contemporary continental philosophy, um, what kind of import they would have in relation to the question of the secular. And I think all of us have been inspired by critiques of uh, secular, the secular and secularism uh, in anthropology, in, um, in other kind of domains in political theory, and wanted to kind of move the discussion, or at least attempt to move the discussion uh, if not in a philosophical field, at least asking philosophical questions uh, that pertain to, to that discussion. Um, so the bracketed non in the title operates on kind of several levels, right? It, it is meant on one side to evoke kind of negations and delimitation of philosophy itself uh, in relation to the secular. Uh, more broadly, one can say it's meant to evoke questions of uh, negativity negation in philosophy and just in general uh, kind of out of uh, the philosophical tradition and at the same time it's also meant kind of more specifically if you just read it without the parentheses to evoke the non-philosophy non as a thought proposed by Francois Laruelle, con the contemporary French thinker who I think all of us have been in various ways engaged with over the years. So the papers that we're going to be presenting today they're going to be fairly short, right, and they're meant as part of, or kind of pieces or condensed pieces of, of a longer kind of dia dialogic and communal projects, uh, project that we've been working on around this kind of intersection between contemporary philosophy and, uh, and critiques of the secular. So what we sort of imagined when we were thinking about this event was <clears throat> something like offering position papers that um, they're 
in condensed form that might have things that are slightly under elaborated or under defended so that in discussion, if you want to push back on any of the under articulated points, we could actually have a discussion about it. But there, I think as a result of the condensed style, it might wind up being, some of the formulation might be elliptical or suggestive and, you know, the, the kind of, we're, we know that that's the case and we're, op we're, we're hoping that, that uh, the parts that are most interesting will come out in discussion. Um, but the reason why we wanted, we wanted to keep our papers to 20 to 25 minutes is partially to have enough time for discussion. So the, the, the basic structure of the event is going to be that Dan is going to go for his, uh, deliver his paper for 20 to 25 minutes. We're going to have a 10 to 15 minute discussion, and then we're going to do that three times. And then at the end, we're going to have you know, the remaining time, which is anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and 15, left for communal discussion of all three papers and picking up and thinking about them together. Um, so. Um, you know, we can, I don't know if you guys want to add anything more about the event in general or, um, or if that's a sufficient introduction. Yeah, I think that was wonderful. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just to say there's some negotiation in terms of time, so, um, um, uh, yeah, looking forward to like the discussion part of it being, being really important, so. Yeah, and one last thing before we start, I have to like thank everyone who made this possible, right, so. First, I have to thank Jonathan Sheehan, Berkeley Center for the Study of Religion, who gave us the like the, the kind of the chunk of chain of the original chunk of money that allowed the, to uh, to bring Dan and Anthony over. Uh, the Townsend Center for the Humanities, uh, Jesse, who's a co-organizer of this event, and uh, Department of Comparative Literature for helping us or for allowing us to use this room. Uh, and then finally, but not leastly, uh, not, uh, is Niklaus, who is always supporting any kind of harebrained idea I decide to come <laughs> up with. So and you know. Oh, and if I run over budget, he is, you know, he's always kind in that regard as well. So, Niklas, thank you. Thank you for, for all your kind of generosity and also the Department of German and Miriam Cotton, who d does a lot of financial work with, without which we also could not have had this event. So, thanks to all those people. And without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Dan for his paper. Okay. Um, so, so, what I want to... Uh, talk about sort of revolves around the connection between non-philosophy or the logic of non and the critique of the secular. Um, non-philosophy, as, as Alex has mentioned, is specifically a term from Francois Laruelle. Uh, let's say the logic of non names my own interest. Um, so what I'd like to do is think about the logic of non uh, in relation to Laruelle's non-philosophy, uh, or to use Laruelle's non-philosophy as a sort of index for um, picking up this logic of non. Um, but I should be clear that I'm, I won't do anything like closely read Laruelle, I won't talk about Laruelle so much, um, although Laruelle is sort of in the air behind all of this, so that's partly for points of discussion. Um, but what I will do is simply pose three questions at various points along the way, which address basic operations of Laruelle's thought. Uh, the degree to which Laruelle's non-philosophy advances the logic of non uh, is, for me, uh, indeterminate. Uh, this indeterminacy is what these questions will index. Um, so having said all this, let me get to some more fundamental questions. Uh, why do I think a logic of non is important? Or more to the point, why do I think the logic of non as a means of dealing with philosophy is relevant to the critique of the secular? 
Are people able to hear me? Yeah? Okay. Um, an answer to these questions begins with attention to the fact that modern philosophy is a secular enterprise. This is the case first. This is the case first because philosophy explicitly distinguishes itself from so-called uh, religious modes of thought. And it's the case second because philosophy as a habituated set of operations is bound to, even productive of, the secular's habituated set, set of operations. And this is the sense that interests me. Uh, and this is to say, more bluntly, philosophy articulates secular power. This is especially so, I want to argue, because the secular operates through possibility. And possibility is a matter claimed to be philosophical. So my point's not just that philosophy supports secular power, it's also that secular power operates through, even as, the category of possibility. And, since possibility is a philosophical matter, antagonism towards the secular entails antagonism towards philosophies of possibility. Hence my question for the logic of non, or the indexed lens of Lauerwell's non-philosophy, is this. Does the non help articulate antagonism towards philosophical possibility? And just very briefly, you may note I'm already slipping between critique and antagonism. This is because I think uh, critique of the secular must be antagonistic, but I'll explain more on that further on. The non, the non by its very nature, is indeterminate. To say no is, in the first instance, to depart from to stop what's positively determined, or determined by given power. For the non, indeterminacy's a kind of weapon. Better the indeterminacy of no than what's already determined to be. I want to affirm such weaponry, yet I'm still hesitant about the non's indeterminacy. It's not that indeterminacy makes the no too antagonistic, it's that indeterminacy may keep the no from being antagonistic enough. In other words, I think indeterminacy could end up dissipating the autonomy of the no. It's this concern that's at the heart of the questions I pose for Lauerwell's non-philosophy. I want the non to articulate a logic that's ultimately autonomous from the object of critique, whether this object of critique is philosophy or the secular. <coughs> My questions then are concerned with the following. Does Lauerwell's non-philosophy articulate such autonomy? Or, on the other hand, does Lauerwell's non-philosophy amount to a departure that still needs or needs relation to the object of critique? So here's uh, my first question. Does Lauerwell's non-philosophy articulate autonomy from philosophy? Or does it seek the possibility of better relating to philosophy? So let me loop back more explicitly to... Th these questions are just like stupid and brief like that. Um, let me loop back uh, more explicitly to the critique of the secular. The demand for this critique's gotten enough noise by now that the question's not whether there needs to be critique. More precisely, the question's how this critique will go. In other words, the matter of secular power or its reproduction operates not in terms of whether there should be critique, instead it operates within the very modality of critique. 
Here's another way of putting this point or this question. What is the name of the secular insofar as it's critiqued? The name of the secular is critiqued, no doubt. But when the secular is critiqued, what is its name? The post-secular, the a-secular, perhaps even the non-secular? With each of these names, what's at stake is a qualification of the secular. What's at stake is the name of the relation between the secular and its critical qualification. These names relate the qualification to the secular. Post is a qualification of the secular. Ah is a qualification of the secular. Now, what's specifically interesting about the non is this. If non's a qualification of the secular, then this qualification at least connotes antagonism. In other words, non-secular at least connotes antagonism to the secular, no to the secular. Of course, how one evaluates qualification depends on how one evaluates the secular. I'll soon offer my own evaluation, but it's already evident I take the secular to be the sort of thing that requires antagonism. For me, critique of the secular is not much of a critique if it generates mere qualification. And by mere qualification, I mean qualification that leaves the qualified object, the critiqued object, more or less in place. Mere qualification, this is an imprecise definition, but uh, mere qualification works like this. Okay, yes, the secular is problematic. We need to qualify the secular. It needs critique. But once we've critiqued it, once we've qualified it, it's all good, right? Then we can keep going. Then we're welcome to go on, right? That's my definition. <laughs> uh, uh, it's worth noting that the secular means the world, the age or time of the world. In this sense, mere qualification means critiquing the world so that the world can keep going. On the other hand, antagonism means critique that stops the world from going on. This would be, as Frank Wilderson says, quote, the end of the world. So if I'm interested in the non, it's because the non connotes such antagonism. The task of the logic of non is to articulate this antagonism, to articulate the non as autonomous from the world, as without need of the world. Let's look more closely at how critique operates. It must be admitted that if there's critique, then qualification's inevitable. Once there's an object of critique, critique's inevitably a qualification of the object. It may be more than a qualification, but it's at least a qualification. So, to say it again, it's not a question of whether there will be qualification. It's a question of how to qualify. Specifically, for me, it's a question of how to qualify, but not to merely qualify. Here's another way of putting the question. Does critique introduce a quality that merely qualifies the secular? Or instead, does critique introduce a quality that's incommensurable with, intrinsically antagonistic to, the secular? If qualification's inevitable, 
pardon me, I'm going to do A's and B's and shit like that. Um, if qualification's inevitable, then relations also inevitable. This is because qualification is a kind of relation. Let's say that A is the object of critique, and B is the quality introduced by critique. So, if A is qualified by B, then there's a relation between A and B. But, what if B is a quality that's incommensurably antagonistic with A? Then the qualification of A by B entails the end of A. This qualification's a relation, but it's also and more so the end of relation. In this case, B qualifies A, and so B relates to A. However, B, when it thus qualifies A, incommensurably, antagonistically, enacts non-relation. My question then is whether we find, in the logic of non, something like this B. So, I'll turn now a bit abruptly to what I have in mind when I speak of the secular. A, per a peculiarly definitive feature of the secular is its capacity to absorb critique and or to regenerate itself through critique. We could say that the secular welcomes critique. We could even say that it needs to welcome critique. This, I think, is because the secular valorizes itself through the welcoming of critique or through critical welcoming. The secular valorizes itself through its capacity to make critique come out well, to make the world come out well, to make the world go on. Now, obviously, secular welcoming is not so welcoming. But this is not my point. Instead, I want to focus on the sense in which the secular is welcoming. The sense in, the sense in which the secular does define itself by welcoming. In other words, we're all uh, critically aware that the secular, when it welcomes, also fails to welcome. My point's not just to critique this failure. More precisely, my point's that secular failure actually generates the secular. The failure of the secular is the critical regeneration of the secular. Failure central to, generative of, secular welcoming. In this sense, the secular is its failure. This secular operation of welcoming is apparent, I think, as possibility. I mean that the secular articulates itself not as what it actually is, but rather as what it possibly could be. This is why the secular welcomes critique. It turns critique towards what actually is, while it turns itself towards what possibly could be. The secular welcomes critique of the actual in order to welcome itself as the possible. So this is the secular narrative. If you critique the actual, then it must be according to some possibility. Critique is narrated in the name of an alternative possibility, a possibility that's not yet actualized. And the secular narrative welcomes this possibility. You can critique the secular all you want because the secular continues to be possible. All this is to say that, this, that secular power names the capacity for critical possibility. And to say this is to emphasize the following. The secular narratively overdetermines 
the difference between given actuality and alternative possibility. In other words, because the secular articulates itself as critical possibility, the call for an alternative is already secularized. Along these lines, I propose that there's ultimately no difference between a standardized secular and an alternative secular. Even an alternative secular remains within a narrative of possibility. So, in view of this second question for Lauerwell's non-philosophy, and here I have in mind how he's come to phrase non-philosophy as non-standard philosophy. My question concerns this term, non-standard. Is this non-standard indicative of an alternative? In other words, the non-standard's clearly not the standard. But is, but is this because it is the alternative? End of blunt question. Let's come back to secular possibility. I want to claim, furthermore, that secular possibility operates through generalization. Secular possibility is possibility as generalization. It operates by generalizing the possibility of the dominant position. And this secular operation has a Christian prehistory, which, as I think is it's relevant, I'm going to briefly discuss it. So stick with <coughs> um, For Christianity, the dominant position was the Christian. This is obviously redundant. What's less redundant is that this dominant position was also the human. The Christian was the human, or the human was the Christian. Having noted this identification, let me get more precise. The Christian was the human in the sense that the Christian fully actualized the possibility of being human. The Christian was the fulfillment of the possibility named by human being. But, in order to articulate this fulfillment of human possibility, Christianity needed to articulate others. Others who possessed human possibility, but did not fulfill it. These others were variously articulated as heretics, Jews, and Muslims. For these others, full humanity was a possibility, but it was not actualized. These others could not actualize the possibility, precisely because they were heretics, Jews, Muslims, others, etc. Now, before coming back to the secular, I want to emphasize something that I think is essential. Constitutive denial. Christianity constituted itself as fully human by denying full humanity to others. The others had only possibility. So it's precisely by denying actualization to others that Christianity constituted itself as fully actualized. This means that the generalization of the Christian position has a limit. If the Christian position is generalized to its others, then it loses the security of its own actualization. The Christian position would then become contaminated through generalization with mere possibility with which the others are associated. Given this context, what is the secular? Yes, I'm being essentialist. Given this context, what is the secular? It's the delinking of the human from the Christian. It's the generalization of the human beyond Christian limits. For the secular, what matters is no longer the human as Christian, but the human as generalizable. 
it's no longer the Christian actualization of humanity. For the secular, it's the generalized possibility of humanity. Of course, some positions remained uh, more human than others, to put it mildly. The point, however, is that the secular articulates humanity as such, including its asymmetries, according to a generalizing possibility. Domination remains, just no longer as actualization, now instead as possibilization. Secular welcoming is the welcoming of this generalized possibility. But if there's such generalization, then where's the denial? I said that Christianity articulated itself as fully actually human only by denying actualization to its others. It marked others as merely possible humans. So if the secular generalizes this possibility, then doesn't it end the denial? Not at all. The denial continues, but now it's qualitatively intensified as, I would say, uh, as anti-blackness. In the context of secular possibility, such anti-blackness is evident as follows. Blackness is denied the possibility of being human. Blackness is denied the capacity to narrate itself according to this possibility. Here I'm again dependent on Wilderson, who I quoted previously. He claims that in the world, which I would call the secular here, quote, the black is a sentient being, though not a human being, unquote. And this, he says, is due to, quote, the blacks and the humans' disparate relationship to violence, unquote. Such violence is therefore the essential site of secular power. The secular constitutes itself as human possibility, as the narrative capacity to become human, by articulating blackness as denied this very possibility. Secular possibility generalized is anti-blackness generalized. This constitutive denial is qualitatively distinct from the Christian constitutive denial of heretics, Jews, and Muslims. Christianity articulated these denied positions as merely possible. This, the secular denies this very possibility to blackness. Along these lines, what I've called the generalization of possibility could then just as well be called the generalized ability of possibility. So the stress here is on ability. Generalized ability names the capacity, the possibility of a humanity constituted through the denial of blackness. Here then, my third question, I'm almost done, my third question for Lauerwell. Um, now I have in mind his notion of the generic. Question's this, in what sense is the generic distinguishable from what I've discussed as generalization? Again, these are all open questions. So I'll close very, very, very briefly with three criteria, what I take as three criteria for the logic of non, as I'm interested in it. Uh, one, this is the shortest one. One, the logic of non must be articulated as knowledge without the secular. Two, the secular's generalizing possibility is narratival. Knowledge without the secular 
thus entails knowledge without narrative. Elaborating a little bit on this, um, the secular narrates knowledge as the possibility of critical relation. It thereby, it thereby orients knowledge toward narrative possibility and away from the initial conditions of narrative. And it's with these initial conditions that there's constitutive denial. Hence, knowledge without the secular must antagonize these, these very initial conditions of narrative. It must articulate knowledge without the possibility of narrative commencement. Um, one could say that the end, of, the end of the narrative world begins with the end of the narrative world's beginning. Three, and finally, the secular reproduces itself according to possibility. Knowledge without the secular must antagonize the very being of possibility. Brief elaboration. Such knowledge, as I'm advancing it, such knowledge is denied the possibility to be, but it's not defined by this denial. It's autonomous. It says no to the possibility of being, but this knows articulated imminently as knowledge. Such knowledge says no to secular denial, but it also says no to the secular possibility of no longer being denied. Instead, it knows it never was in need of this possibility, the never was against the no longer. Such knowledge is real, it's the reality of knowledge. Thanks. My paper is called Imminence Without the World. Uh, let me begin with a question. <coughs> what is the relation between imminence and the secular? It may seem that such a question doesn't need to be posed at all. The answer already obvious and operative for all of us. One has to only recall Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, which made the fundamental characteristic of secular modernity the construction of what he famously called the imminent frame. The frame, supposedly common to all of us in the modern West, and which provides, quote, the sense context in which we develop our beliefs, can be inhabited, according to Taylor, in two opposed ways, as closed, uh, that is, precisely autonomous and self-sufficient, or as open, striving for, and exposed to something beyond and transcendent. So that's our choice, basically, right? Either a closed imminence folded back on itself, or an open imminence lived in relation to transcendence. My point is not to begin exploring the specific elements that comprise Taylor's theoretical account, but only to call to mind for you the basic distribution of concepts that it exemplifies and embodies. Imminence linked with the secular, transcendence with the divine and religious. The obviousness of such conceptual distribution is attested to by the way various and often conflicting perspectives rely on it. In both Feuerbach's anthropology and the work of early Marx, transcendence marks the religious aspect in contrast to the imminence of the worldly, the secular, and the human. A similar distribution of concept is likewise operative in contemporary phenomenological discourse, so in the works of Levinas and those indebted to him, imminence <coughs> remains the name for the enclosure of the world and the foreclosure of relation to genuine alterity and transcendence. Which by, uh, and transcendence, by contrast, carries religious connotations. In such accounts, imminence is always conceptualized as standing in a logical relation to, or as a conceptual attribute of, the world or the human subject. What is imminent is the world, the human world, but also the power of the human subject within that world. There's a 
kind of unquestioned situating of imminence with a, within a kind of pre-established conceptual field, right? Imminence is the becoming worldly of the world and the rejection of transcendence, which is divine, always, however, critically entangled with the religious. The registers um, may be different, but in each case, the deployment of imminence subtends a secular sensibility in opposition to transcendence, which is quasi-essentialized as a marker of religious discourse. You could name a number of other people. This is, I, I think, there, it's a very uh, basic association, right? But uh, uh, I would suggest that we might benefit from rethinking this all-too-obvious conceptual association that binds imminence to secularism and opposes it to divine transcendence. Can we dissociate or sever imminence from its correlation with the world? What if we subtract imminence from the conceptual opposition between the world and its other, between enclosure and totality on one hand and the trace of the transcendent outside on the other? Through such, a, through such a dissociation, we can allow imminence to stand for something else entirely, I want, I want to suggest, than just one term in a reversible equation. So in the longer version, I also ex uh, explore, kind of make the argument that the reduction of imminence to a worldly totality is itself a retroactive effect of a valor valorization of transcendence, right? So it's not a coincidence that all the, the kind of the all too often, imminence is rendered as closure, as totality, in the very same theoretical gesture that it begins to require transcendence to save it from its, solips, from its kind of solipsism and like killing us in its kind of enclosure, right? So we could talk about this if this is interesting, but that's, that happens in the longer version. So to think through this subtraction and rearticulation of imminence, I want to turn to a surprising source for at least or it's surprising, at least for those of you who don't know me in this room, because it's not a contemporary philosophy, it's actually the medieval mystic and theologian Meister Eckhart. That said, most of the things I'm saying about Eckhart have very much like discussions with Laruel and Deleuze in the, and, and even Agamben in the background. So we're talking about the 14th century, but only sort of. <laughs> Imminence, if the concept can be applied at all for <coughs> Eckhart, cannot be said to characterize the world or the human creature, but can only properly be identified with the divine itself. This move, which renders imminence divine and thus unconstrained by any transcendence, because there's not, nothing outside, can be apprehended in a number of different theological formulations. And by number, I mean like there's really a number of them. I, I'm going to just give you one formulation when he says, what is created is absolutely nothing. So he writes, all creatures are a pure nothing. I do not just say that they are insignificant or a little something. They are a pure nothing. I once said, and it is true, if someone were to have the whole world and God, he would not have more than if he had God alone. The claim is startling insofar as it does not propose an asymmetrical but still analogical relation between creature and creator, but instead on, a, on the resolute ontological nothingness of the creature. This proposition is both theoretical and a practical one for Eckhart. So Eckhart does not only affirm the nothingness of a creature as a speculative concept, he asks those listening to take on that nothingness, to become the nothing. So, and if the first element that I want to question theoretically is imminence implication with the world, the second and closely related one is in turn how both of them are implicated with the subject, as we conceive it. So, part two is called Becoming Nothing, Dispossession of the Subject. So, to recall the nature of this connection between imminence in the world and subject, we need only again to return to Taylor, who, who links the secular age not only with the imminent frame, he also links both of them with the creation and the rise of the self-standing subject, which he calls the buffered self, right? So he, for example, <coughs> says the construction of imminent frame goes hand in hand with a much firmer sense of the boundary between self and other, right? That's part of the same story of modernity. Keep that in kind of in the background. 
Uh, more generally, <clears throat> critical engagement with secularism and the secular have brought renewed attention to the assumption and biases at the heart of the modern subject. From one side, we have learned to see the genealogical connections between the secular liberal subjectivity, one invested with agency, prioritizing interiority, and the Protestant Reformation. From the other, thanks to works uh, to work of scholars like Talal Saad and Samba Mahmoud, and Nicholas in a different tradition as well, among others, we have made acutely we've been made acutely aware of the techniques of self-formation and self-cultivation, ascetic regiments, and spiritual exercises that go into making subjects. So, as Mahmoud, for example, describes in her classic account of Islamic uh, mosque movement, subjects cannot be sim simply seen as given but must be seen as produced through a set of specific material and ethical practices that comprise process of subjectivation, yielding pious subjects as the result of those practices and not at the beginning. So the key theoretical contrast that has resulted in the, these debates, to put it all too briefly, I think is between, on one side, a kind of a purified quasi-Protestant modern liberal subject and a subject cultivated through material practices of ethical and affective subjectivation that can be associated, I think, with both versions of readings of, in Islamic tradition of, of piety and Catholic tradition. This is why I mentioned Nikos, I think, does kind of convergent questions of subjectivity and kind of monastic and mystical texts in, uh, in the medieval Catholic tradition. So, but this, this, this distinction, I would suggest, as productive as it's been for, I think, many people engaged with questions of uh, secularism critically, has rendered unthinkable, or at least somewhat unimportant and marginal, the movement of subjective dispossession and destitution. How would our understandings of imminence in the secular be transformed <coughs> if we explore the possibilities of the subject's loss, undoing, or emptying, instead of presuming either its givenness or exploring its ethical formation and subjectivation? How would the exploration of the paths of desubjectivation transform our understanding of secular and its subjectivities? So I turn back to Eckhart here because at the heart of his sermons is a repeated call to annihilate oneself, to become empty, to undergo detachment, to become nothing. So to articulate these and other similar calls, he deploys a set of pre-existing vocabularies, right? He, he employs scriptural, theological, mystical, neoplatonic, monastic, and a number of other uh, discourses. So I want to mention that, but the complexities of his kind of modes of speech and deployment of Christian terms will not be my preoccupation today. What I want to do is something that outline the basic scheme or operation. And just to be clear, I, you know, Many of you know I, I work on Eckhart a lot, like actually, but my, here I treat Eckhart not as an like, um, object of study, but really as a terrain for thinking through a number of theoretical positions that I want to kind of intervene in. in uh, like it's a, it's, a, it's a terrain on which to explore a theoretical pro uh, problematic rather than an object of study. So for those familiar with uh, the tradition of Christian mysticism or spiritual theology, the claim that one has to abandon the self won't sound in itself particularly novel. Like, that's what Christian spirituality looks like a lot, right? You have to, like, get rid of yourself. <clears throat> what makes Eckhart's discourse fascinating is that his calls for self-abandonment, becoming nothing, are not configured in order to experience transcendence, to become receptive to God, to receive grace, to submit to the will of the other. In other words, becoming nothing in Eckhart does not affirm transcendence at all, but in fact, it enacts a radical subversion of all transcendence. Though deploying the theological imaginary of humility or sp and spiritual poverty, their proposition is never that of becoming a slave to a transcendent other. So there's clearly in much in all three monotheistic traditions that would, would have ver ver versions of this. Nor is it, for Eckhart, about becoming a self-standing subject. 
Rather, as he puts it, it's actually about becoming a friend of God. So, not a slave of God, not a subject without God, but a friend of God, in absolute preontological equality with God. And I could mention later why I say preontological. In relation to debates over subjects of secularism, this is quite noteworthy. The subject of secularism has been, after all, critiqued for being defined by a liberal paradigm that holds autonomy and self-possession as its primary normative orientations. So as both Islamic and Christian traditions differently have asked, uh, w they have asked whether forms of subjectivations that take the figuration of the slave and unconditional obedience, whether or not they cannot produce alternative modes of ethical and effective life and capacities of the subject. What Eckhart's discourse suggests is a third to this diet, dyad, neither a self-possessed subject nor the submission to a transcendent other mediated by material practices of self-cultivation, but the affirmation of a generic dispossessed life. He moves, in other words, from a discourse of being under God to a discourse of freedom, but a freedom without the subject, a mode of what he calls uncreated freedom, free from <coughs> both subjection itself and, or subjection to itself and to transcendence alike. Put slightly differently, to become nothing entails subverting and exiting the grammar of difference and alterity. It is predicated on thinking otherwise than through the prim primacy of the difference between self and other. The insight here is this, right? The other is only other in relation to some self, to some unified and constituted self. The other is only other because there is a self to which it can be other. If one welcomes the other, affirms the other, and thus opens and negates the self in relation to the other, one still inhabits the grammar of difference and alterity. And I take this to be the import of Eckhart's radical formulation, when he says something like, before I was I, God was not God. He was what he was. Uh, and the point is that before the self is constituted, the other is not other, the, the other is not transcendent. The other, God is only God in relation to the self that's constituted as other, the self that, to which the God is othered. But this is also, you know, the general logic of, uh, of self and other, uh, theological or not. Before, so, be, before I was I, God was not God, but he was what he was. Before, and though this is not a temper before, before the other was other and the self was the self, there was an imminence of common life, a generic undivided form of living. To cease making difference in otherness, the structure coordinates of thought allows for the affirma affirmation of the logic of imminence, but also of the different one as always already there before scission, before difference, before division are enacted. The, suggest the suggestion here is that we dismantle the conceptuality that takes the one as something to be accomplished that renders its real imminence, the one's real imminence, into a transcendent unity to come. The one is not a transcendence to be achieved. To follow this logic entails deactivating also the necessity of mediation, that mediation that transcendence enacts. After all, transcendence is by definition something beyond, but a beyond that's never a pure beyond, but something that demands mediation and work on its behalf here and now. So in one of Eckhart's sermons, we hear, for example, quote, So long as you perform your works for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, or for God's sake, or for the sake of your eternal blessedness, and, and you work them from without, you're going completely astray. And I mention this, I mention, or I cite this because 
What you see here is not a, a, what you might expect, which is a critique of an inappropriate object of desire. No, these objects of desire, like if there are any theologically justified objects of desire, it would be God, eternal blessedness, kingdom of heaven, like you can't come up with a better trio. But what the reason why he rejects it, because it's an attack on the very conceptual grammar that legitimates operation of instrumentality, labor, mediation as such. If you work for is the problem. You could put the best things on the other side. If you work for, you fail. And I'm just going to say briefly, uh, this is, you know, this seems highly theoretical, but I actually think that, uh, you know, something of this logic is articulated in Mianthi Fernando's book um, on the Muslim French when she says the Muslim French are a category of political subjectivity who both affirm their Frenchness and their Muslim in non-contradiction and say, we don't need to be integrated into the French society because we're already French. We are already, like, we don't, we're, we don't need to be transcendently unified because we are somehow other than need to be become French. We're always already French and you have to deal with that material factual. And I think that there is some, she doesn't use the language of the one or imminence there, but I think the fact that uh, that you have to deactivate the illusion that something has to be achieved because that in in the real lived experience it already is achieved because it never had to be achieved in the first place because it already was I think has uh, a, um, that's like a kind of more practical version uh, of this logic so following Eckhart's schema I would suggest that then imminence should not be correlated with the subject in the world but with the being nothing but a nothing that is, in its annihilation, also a life, to use Deleuze's language, or a life without a why, to use a Deleuze or a Cardian combination. A life that is indifferent to the imperatives of labor and accomplishment and to the logics of unification and synthesis. There's nothing to achieve, nothing to accomplish, because imminence declares that everything has been and still is always already indifferently. We're not primarily subjects or sovereigns, creatures of cre creators or Promethean self-creators, but imminent life liable to be sometimes and often and all too often interpolated and appropriated by various forms of authority. In turn, radical imminence then names not that which is opposed to transcendence, but a generic life always already lived as dispossessed, preceding and exceeding all difference between self-other, between creature and creator, between subject and transcendence. So there's quick, kind of finishing two, two parts, which are much shorter than the previous two. So Eckhart's life without a why, this life freed from imperatives of labor, mediation, and giving count of itself, is not elsewhere. It is, as Eckhart says, uncreated, undivided between creature and creator, between self and other. As such, you could say it's not of this world, not totalized by the world of creation, but at the same time, it's not elsewhere either. Rather, it is lived otherwise than the distinction between here and there. It is neither here nor there, as Eckhart would put it, marking with this indeterminate locution its status as actually being eternal and not localizable within historical time. But this eternity, Eckhart's eternity, is not a celestial eternity. It's not an eternity to come as the realization of history that needs to be achieved it doesn't come after history, and it does not mark an afterlife. Eckhart's appeal to eternity might be a stumbling, and I think has been a stumbling block for contemporary readers, as it might evoke the all two kind of all the ontotheological problems of presence, hyperpresence, and like you know, theological belief and whatever else we find problematic with the concept of eternity. I want to suggest tentatively in the longer paper, it's much less tentative, but I would suggest something else that is at stake here. 
by no longer being displaced into a transcendent horizon to be appropriated and lived in the afterlife, eternity becomes a mechanism for the troubling of the primacy of futurity and teleology. There's nothing to strive for because to strive for is to displace life, to become entangled in the apparatus that divides it and project it into a transcendent future, thereby necessitating and justifying the mediating effects and operations of hope and labor. These become the illusory but mandated means for fulfilling a dreamed unification that always remains constitutionally deferred and to come. We'll never get there, but we gotta keep hoping and working for it. Uh, the imperatives of hope, just like the imperatives of integration in political discourse, are constitutionally future-oriented. They're the stuff that we're working for. They decline the now, the imminence of the one that always already is, in order to displace it into an impossible future of synthesis. synthesis. And by, t by contrast, eternity marks not something hoped for or worked for, but precisely that which, as always already there, as eternal, abjures the, abjures the ruses of hope, desire, and labor, seeing in them nothing but the subjugating effects of a promised future that will never come. Here then, imminence rejects the imperatives of, and affects of futurity, a not insignificant proposition, I would say, for, the, for questions of secularism, given that, as others have argued, Dan among others, futurity in its various guises remains a dominant, if not a structure and conceptual mechanism of both Christianity and secularism in different ways, but nonetheless. Uh, you basically can't have either the secular Christianity without a, like a propulsion forward into the future. In his refusal of hope and futurity, Eckhart figures, you could say, in Lee Edelman's words, a refusal of the coercive belief in the paramount value of futurity. But rather than seeing in this figuration a radical negativity in relation to symbolic, as Edelman puts it, or in relation to civil society or the world, as Frank Wilderson might put it, Eckhart relativizes the whole structure, I would say, of totality and negativity, the kind of the whole and the, the thing that cuts into it, in order to affirm the imminence of the one. Following this model, to give up hope, hope for a realization, is not encountered, is, is not to encounter the failure of futurity, but marks a sort of disinvestment from the, nece the necessity that futurity itself proclaims. Like, if you don't, you know, if you disinvest from futurity, it's not that you fail, it's that you've disinvested from success or failure, you could say. You could say that futurity is a ruse, but so is thinking that the only exit from futurity is to fail that futurity. In other words, one can say abandonment of futurity is attached not, or at least not only, to a death drive or a social death, but precisely a generic imminent life. Not the life of the subject in the world, I would again add, or in civil society, not at all, but a life unmoored, ungrounded, untethered. Perhaps, in other words, to be outside or below the world is not to only to undergo dehumanization or to inhabit negativity, but also to manifest and embody what Fred Moten would call insurgent mobile life, or I would say Francois Laruel would call in the insurrection of the victim. Okay, let me summarize and conclude. My suggestion is that we can disentangle imminence from the world and from its secularist appropriation, or rather, if we can disentangle imminence from the world and from its secularist appropriations, we might be able to redraw the lines according to which debates in both the study of secularism and philosophy of religion have been drawn. The choice will not be between a secularist imminent frame and a transcendent beyond, nor between an interior subjectivity that is contract, or, sorry, nor between interior uh, subjectivity and a subject of material pra practice of subjectivation. 
Instead, imminence entails the possibility of a dispossessed and desubjectified common life, one that precedes and exceeds the constitution of the world and its subjects. Imminence, then, would name the very logic that undercuts both the world and transcendence, that is, the transcendence that's supposed to register the beyond of the world. The world and transcendence are part of one kind of specular mechanism that forecloses real generic existence. In working with Eckhart, I want to show that the theological archives have the resources within them themselves, the capacity to, or the resources and capacity to articulate imminence in an unrestrained way. And I think this fact is important because it challenges the conceptual regulation on which secularism relies kind of intellectually, right? Uh, and this is where I return to questions of philosophy for the last conclusion. For by insisting that imminence is harbored within theological traditions, no less than philosophical ones, at least potentially, I want to upend the opposition between religious thought and secular thought, between theology and philosophy, insisting on the fact that religious discourses do not always defend transcendence. There's nothing essential about that link, despite what we might be told. And philosophy does not necessarily articulate imminence, again, despite what Deleuze and everyone tells us. Um, Rather, both discourses and their, uh, and their archives have the capacity to articulate modes of imminence, and both have the capacity to defend modes or, and nodes and planes of transcendence. If religion is secularism, self-appointed and self-constructed other, a critique of the secular should entail not a turn towards specific re a specific religious perspective, but a radical reappraisal and reconstellation of the archives that are currently distributed according to the secular wishes between secular material and religious material. In other words, it is, it, I'm asking us to critically rethink how we divide and distribute modes of thought, textual production, and theoretical operation, and giving us a path out of the discursive distributions that I think legitimate the secular. Even when you appeal just to religious sources, you're still kind of doing the, the work of that, that's kind of proclaimed as other to the secular. And I think that maybe radically reconfiguring the alliances would be, would be one way forward. So the last point is that there, was a, there is a convergent effect of using Eckhart in this way, right? There's a second effect. It, is, it was to suggest, or it is to suggest, that Eckhart proposes a formulation of imminence that is itself um, of a, uh, that doesn't reproduce uh, <coughs> the point is it, do, it doesn't reproduce but actually subverts the machines of transcendence, futurity, hope, and salvation precisely those characters that we usually think are fundamental to the Christian imaginary right? Uh, though Eckhart uses the linguistic, conceptual, and theological resources of the Christian tradition, like he write, you read him and he sounds like a Christian for the most part, he does, or he uses the words that Christians use, uh, he does so in a way that puts in question Christianity's dominant theological formation, its relation to time, to transcendence, to interiority of the subject, to conversion, precisely those elements that, uh, that have bound uh, bound it, the Christianity in its conceptual logic, uh, to militant secularism, I think, in ways that Dan has also described. As a result, then, I just wanted to finish on this note, that Eckhart hardly stands in my reading for like a triumphal return of Christian theology, right? That's, oh, he's not a dissimulated kind of pro ruse of Protestantism. He's rather what he stands for is the possibility of articulating imminence and generic life within theological archives, no less than secular philosophy. So, thank you. So uh, my, my talk is called uh, Dissimilar Messianity. Um, hopefully I'll explain 
somewhat what that means. Um, but first, I just want to say thank you for for coming and um, joining in this conversation with us. It's always a uh, it's always a surprise, like when when you show up in a place and some people come. So, um, but it's it's a it's a kind of grace, and I appreciate it. So thank you. Um, so secularism is a, a form of anthropology. Uh, not in the sense of the academic discipline, though undoubtedly my claim here would bear on the discipline insofar as it is and remains philosophical. But in this case, I mean the term literally as its Greek root suggests. Secularism is an ordering of the human, the attempt at the determination of the generic identity of the human via the logos. Secularism is a claim <laughs> regarding the identity of the human, and it attempts to craft the human. Such a crafting of the human must take place within a world. So obviously we've been talking. And so secularism, with its attendant forms of naturalism, absorbs the human into the world. The human, which is generically shapeless and unrepresentable outside of the world, that is, in her radical imminence, has shape imposed, imposed upon her and is made representable by being forced to manifest upon the world as background. The world is always already a hinterworld, uh, to pull on a... Oh, a Nietzschean word. Part of the non-philosophical generalization of anthropology, disempowering the logos or deploying it as material, is the dualistic vision of the human separated from the world. As a corollary claim, the subject is also distinguished from what Laruel calls the human in human, um, so the human being in the human being, um, and a subject only exists in relation to the world. So there's three terms here, human in human, in, in the human's radical imminence, um, the subject as uh, the human in human appears in the world, and the world. Okay. Um, and the subject only exists uh, in relation to the world usually as a subject in struggle. This human in human is a negative name. There is no way to represent this human, only uh, the projected subject positions which are relative and local, and this human in human has no universal rights values or, co or coherence since it does not appear in the world or on the background of the world. One may take joy in the radical separation of this human from the world, but that joy is not inherent to the human in human. It is the act of a projected subject attempting to think the unrepresentable. There is nothing to affirm or negate with the human in human. It is simply the real. And so each one of us may declare with halage, I am the real. But remember, the price paid by Halaj within the world was his own destruction. So after coming to see the weight of the post-secular event, witnessed to and theoretically investigated in both conservative theological <laughs> appropriations of the event, as well in more interesting politico-anthropological fidelity to that event, after coming to see that weight, I've been trying to think how the practices of non-philosophy help us to know and deploy the secular in more human ways. Um, and in some ways, I guess I'm, you know, the emissary of Francois Laruel, though I'd like to, to, to push away from that. So in some ways, you know, when Dan, when Dan accuses him or uh, questions him, um, I don't really want to answer for him, but hopefully we'll, 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 we'll maybe talk about that. So I've, uh, I've suggested in the past the, the possibility of a concept which has been largely empty of content, but provocative or insistent, I hope, that I called the generic secular or secularity without secularism. In a sense, what I was trying to think here uh, was certain uh, possibilities, oh no, of understanding. <laughs> not heterogeneous practices, uh, not heterogeneous practices gathered under the homogeneous rubric of religion, but the existence of an indifference within these heterogeneous practices. 
So an indifference within these heterogeneous practices. The generic secular, in contradistinction to what we could call the determined secular, or the, exact, uh, the actually existing secular, and its aristats, universalism, and, you know, here, we might as well not beat around the bush. Uh, when I say the secular, um, uh, what I mean is white settler colonialism and anti-blackness that perpetuates itself through a disavowal of its blackness, through claims to a universal that says that the Muslim or the black could be human, but only on the condition that they no longer appear in the world as Muslim or black. So, but in contradistinction to the secular, the generic secular is not a world. It is a name for an epistemological practice of thinking the human um, when the world is no longer treated as logos, or sorry, uh, uh, an epistemological practice of thinking the human beyond the worldly human and for thinking subject positions that may be crafted when the world is no longer treated as logos or framework for the logos and is treated as just stuff to build with, um, build in the sense deployed by uh, five percenter uh, thinkers. Um, so in attempting to understand what this non-philosophical conception of the generic secular might mean, let's take an example that will perhaps and hopefully be more familiar. Um, in one of his more laconic moments, uh, Talal Assad summarizes his critique of certain forms of secular anthropology, writing, life is essentially itself. Um, as, uh, as Bassett Ippol writes, um, Assad refuses to understand religion, disciplinary practices, and he, he hyphenates this, in the historicist terms that subsume and translate life into a metaphor slash symbol. So life is essentially itself. That is in a nutshell what I mean by the generic secular, and is what I aim to do in this paper by reading um, a number of signs uh, that, that range from the French Revolution to Shia Ishmali practices of taqiyya in ways that are not apparently faithful, though I, though I hope contain a kind of fidelity through dissimulation. But these fragments towards attempting to think a disempowered or impoverished conception of anthropology to develop a kind of practice of thinking regarding the human that remains rigorous and attentive, but without that thinking confusing itself with the lived identity of the human. The decline of philosophy, anthropology, secularism, and perhaps everything in favor or with a preferential <laughs> option for the human and the creature. At the same time, there is a challenge running throughout this paper between the distinction between human-inhuman and the subject position that one, in some sense, embodies and, and that determines much of our worldly existence. Um, this uh, is the challenge of the slave, and it's genderless pronoun uh, intended here, its role in the world and potential to unravel the world. So I take this as... Um, as, uh, the, the, the subject position of the slave to be a real challenge to really thinking through the generic secular, and I'm trying to, to tarry with that and, and perhaps just fail, though really fail, not like fail so that I can keep going. Um, by turning to this figure of the slave, we begin to make more apparent the stakes of secularism and its construction of religion, which has effects on these forms of life. The slave is used to construct the world by being taught virtue through terror. In the same way that secularism's hallucination of virtuous universalism and a homogenous nature is produced through terror. Now I'm of course here referring to the, the famous dialectic of Robespierre in the midst of the Jacobin attempt to build a bourgeois utopia. And I quote, virtue without which terror is disastrous, terror without which virtue is impotent. Um, the choice between us of secularism and a post-secular uh, moment, perhaps where a messianism is, uh, is deployed, is not a simplistic choice uh, when pitched between virtue and terror. 
Those who study the secular as others once studied religion know that there is a history of violence here and the possibility of greater violence in the future, that secularism is violence, and that the secular provides the metaphysics of violence for many states. But let's consider the ideal through its abstraction. Robespierre is perhaps an interesting case here, precisely because of his radical stance regarding slavery. It is important to note that the famous quote regarding virtue and terror appeared the day after the French National Assembly responded to slave revolts in the French colonies by abolishing slavery on the 4th of January in 1794 to have it remain in other forms and formally restored by Napoleon in 1802. But three years prior to this original um, uh, uh, <coughs> abolishment of slavery, we find Robespierre marking a certain kind of utopian fanaticism when he responds to a proposal to constitutionalize slavery, so, so make sla to protect slavery within the French Constitution, by, by powerfully declaring, and I quote again, perish your colonies if you are keeping them at that price. Yes, if you had either to lose your colonies or to lose your happiness, your glory, your liberty, I would repeat, perish your colonies, unquote. So, Robespierre is interesting also because he was not a French secularist in any straightforward sense that we could translate into 2015, and even the clearly revolutionary beginnings of what becomes French secularism were far more explicit about what secularism required. A new way of carving up time, a new calendar with the destruction of formerly holy days as they came to be replaced by republican holidays. There was something more honest about this form of the construction of secular time and of Robespierre's uh, secularism avant la lettre, for he did not embrace the cult of reason, famously, while at the same time declared the need to de-Christianize the Republic while also seeking to replace Christianity with something equally transcendent in his festival of the higher being. The goal was not to create space for these other forms of life, uh, but to, in a sense, weaken them through appropriation and mutation. I do not think we can simply condemn this. It may be that appropriation and mutation is fundamentally a human act and one related to the messianic, but we do see in Robespierre how such an honest secularism comes to undo itself, how it comes to act within what we might call an autoimmune structure. For the secularism here is always mixed, it always contains a universalism that is actually a particular. The citizen of color is only a citizen if there is a French Republic. If the black slave becomes a French citizen, then they may become human, but they must submit to virtue. And Robespierre's definition of virtue is instructive in this regard as it slips between a transcendent ideal, which is equality, and a transcendent structure that organizes the form of life, which is the homeland and its laws. And here's a, a, long, a longer quote. That virtue is none other than love of the homeland and its laws. But as the essence of the republic or of democracy is equality, it follows that love of the homeland necessarily embraces love of equality." Unquote. So what happens when one is outside the homeland? What happens when they have no home and no land and so no virtue? They must be subjected, literally made into subjects by terror. Alain Badu takes this dialectic as instructive with regard to how the quote-unquote incorporation of a human animal goes on to, and I quote, unfold in a subjective process so that the grace of being immortal may be accorded to this animal in the discipline of a subject and the construction of a truth, unquote. Badu claims that all the desire to get rid of terror, uh, sorry, that every desire to get rid of terror is simply uh, an instance of reformist or reactionary thought. For every affect must be marshaled in the construction of this subject to truth, as he calls it. As he goes on to write, the, the materialist dialectic will work under the assumption that no political subject has yet attained the eternity of the truth which it unfolds without moments of terror. For, uh, 
uh, for a saint just asked, what do those who want neither virtue nor terror want? His answer is well known, but Dew tells us. They want corruption, another name for the failure of the subject, unquote. Is the subject to truth of Bidou as inheritor of the radical tradition of the French Revolution subject to secular time or messianic time? Insofar as the dialectic of virtue and terror is a dialectic of progress, even if it is an open progress as in Bidou, then yes, it is the subject um, as a subject precisely because one is subject to secular time. The failure of the subject then is perhaps another name for the messianic. Uh, but let's say, following a, a recent quip by uh, an English author, Dominic <coughs> Fox, that there may be another answer. What do those who want neither virtue nor terror want? To be left alone. And let's take this seriously, that there is a desire to be alone, to be utterly deracinated. Uh, this is what I want to suggest is a kind of messianism, or messianity. Um, we can talk about the difference uh, so Benjamin's theses on the philosophy of history um, contain interesting passage where the figure of the slave comes to be a determining figure in a way that might help us to think through this. The slave being what we might say is a failed subject or even a non-subject uh, in, in Badu's sense. First there is in uh, Thesis 11, or Thesis 11 uh, where he, be he brings out a quote from Marx's critique of the Gotha program, uh, specifically the passage where Marx states that if the human is reduced to uh, his or her labor power alone, then he or she becomes nothing but a slave, calling undoubtedly upon Aristotle's definition of the slave um, as those whose business is the use of their bodies and who can do nothing better, unquote. Um, such a reduction of the human threatens Marx's own work, though, as Benjamin subtly suggests, for a certain subset of the working class um, is taken by Marx to be a more reduced or subtractive form of humanity that have a supposed secular soteriological function. So whereas the, the Gotha program declares that everything good is created by the labor, everything good in this world is created by the labor of the working class, there is a sense that this property, or even in a, a more explicitly ontological register, um, uh, these attributes uh, may be owned. So the, the properties or the attributes of, of the working class in, in particular. The, uh, and this, this comes from um, uh, the thesis. The man who possesses no other property than his labor power must of necessity become the slave of men ha who have made themselves owners, unquote. For the authors of the Gotha program, there is a theology at work. Uh, for the working class and their labor on the factory floor becomes a messianic act, the secularization of the Protestant work ethic as the working out in fear and trembling of one's own salvation. But for Marx and Benjamin, work is not liberation or salvation. Uh, which is the secular name, and watch the religious may seem clear to us, liberation or salvation, but I think such clarity is, is, is perhaps deceptive here. So, work is uh, structured precisely by the secular time of empty homogeneity that is able to be carved up by the mechanical clock. Benjamin goes on in the next thesis, thesis 12, to subtly critique Marx for repeating the same problem that he himself diagnosed. There is a, a certain rejection of the working class as the carrier for the messianic, but also a rejection of the notion that this subtractive subject position carries the essence of the human. Benjamin says, not man or men, but the struggling oppressed class itself is the depository of human knowledge. 
Marx then was mistaken in seeing amongst the working class, even the proletariat, the quote-unquote last enslaved class, though Benjamin also misses that the radical deracination of the slave means there is no class being available to the slave, that the political ontology built around class struggle cannot account for the slave. And, you know, um, obviously this is coming from, from Wilderson and, and Jared Sexton. But the Social Democrats, um, the, Goth the Gotha program, uh, who are explicit targets of uh, Benjamin's critique here, pick up on this soteriological conception of the working class and disempower this class simply by casting them as the secular messiah. And I quote, Social Democrats thought fit to assign to the working class the role of, uh, of the redeemer of future generations, in this way cutting the sinews of its greatest strength, unquote. This conception of the Messiah drained the Messiah of any semblance of terror by training the working class in virtue through a love for their future, for their children, in the sense not of some new form of inalienable life, but as the continuation of the working class as such, for the homeland that stands for equality. This training, Benjamin says, made the working class forget both its hatred and its spirit of sacrifice, for both are nourished by the image of enslaved ancestors rather than that of liberated grandchildren. So yet another split here, ancestors and grandchildren, why not think of the enslaved now? Agamben's um, meditation on the notion of messianic time helps us to finally get to grips on its identity, the identity of messianic time. And this comes from his The Time That Remains. What enters the apostle is not the last day, it is not the instant in which time ends, but the time that contradicts itself and begins to end, or, if you prefer, the time that remains between time and its end, unquote. What is at play here is time, its end, and the remainder between time is empty and time as no longer. In a way that uh, then messianic time, as described by Benjamin and Agamben and others, is a prime example of decision in the sense that Francois Laruelle gives it when he discusses what he calls the philosophical decision. What unifies time and its end, uh, uh, oh, sorry, what unifies time and its end but this remainder? The remainder is the very scission of time, and its end is what makes it possible to recognize time and some potential end. When Laruel carries out his diagnostic, people often assume that there's an implicit moralism, that it would be better if there had been no decision. Um, such a reading I don't think is necessary. Uh, the decision may produce certain negative effects, foremost amongst them a kind of epistemological lens that blinds one to the radical contingency of, of any decision whatsoever, but is also just simply material now, in the midst of a now. We can make some sense out of Agamben's attempt to talk of operational time as a way to understand this cut as material. For operational time refers to the time it takes to think the representation of time as a representation. He writes, and I think this summarizes it well, we may, um, we may not propose our first definition, or sorry, we may now propose our first definition of messianic time. Messianic time is the time that takes time to come to an end, or more precisely, the time we take to bring to an end, to achieve our representation of time. It is the ability to see the scission, to work out within the scission, or with the scission. There is another form of time that I've, I've not spoken of much here, and that's the time of the apocalyptic. Agamben and others take great pains to correct previous philosophies of history, uh, which confuse messianic time with apocalyptic time. The messianic is unconcerned with the future. It is the time of the now. There is then a decision in favor of messianic time over apocalyptic time. Yet, 
I've tried to suggest here through the, the kind of reading of these different texts that there's a reversibility between secular time and messianic time. Such a reversibility is not present uh, uh, between apocalyptic time and these other two. For an apocalyptic time, there is no time. It is not even empty, it simply is not. Apocalyptic time is not time that may be represented, though it may be lived. How it is lived in a subject position of some kind may be another name for messianic time, for the Messiah is a subject that brings about the end of the world. Yet, for this to actually happen, for the Messiah not to simply fall back into secular time as a function of its progress, we have to conceive of the dissimilarity of the Messiah. Dissimilarity altogether, not in relation to something, but dissimilarity at the very core of her radical identity. So, um, in a certain sense, what I'm calling dissimilar messianity is captured by Kafka's famous remark that the Messiah will not come until he is no longer needed. He will come only after his arrival. He will not come on the last day, but on the very last day. But what I want to do here um, is, and this is maybe a charlatan move, um, but I want to play a bit with the possibilities um, open to use um, etymologically in the slipping into English of the Arabic term taqiyah, which is best translated, I'm told, as dissimulation, a term normally taken to simply mean concealment or disguised. Or, though if this were so simple, then why not simply use those terms? So there's something more going on in the practice of taqiyah and dissimulation generally. Concealment, yes, but concealment through a marking uh, dissimilarity. Such dissimilarity is usually thought to be between self and appearance, though we could perhaps um, clarify uh, as this is a dissimilarity between one's radical inalienable <coughs> identity and one's position as a subject in the world. So when I, when I speak of the generic secular or secularity without secularism, I am thinking not of a standard epistemology, which is how Assad characterizes the secular. I'm trying to think of a way to respond to two demands that appear when we talk about the demand that occurs between the slippage of secular time and messianic time. Um, one might read it as an apocalyptic demand in the ve vein of Fanon's in in invocation via a misquotation of Césaire, um, which I like that it's a misquotation of Césaire, that the only thing worth beginning is the quote-unquote end of the world, that those who want neither virtue nor terror simply want to be left alone, to not be dragged into the story, to live without a why, and though this may require something like an ethics or a new grammar of suffering, the work of such grammar begins as a demand like Job crying violence. Um, so what I see the generic secular attempting to respond to then is a few demands that carry certain conditions. First, in the demand to be left alone, there is a certain recognition of the harassing powers of any tradition. Secularism's conception of itself as some neutral state has been shown to be nothing but a fantasy, and I think you know, everyone in this room probably knows that. But there are heterogeneous practices that make up asecular or non-secular traditions, what we might call religion for the sake of being easily understood but all too easily misunderstood, also mark a, distinction, a, a distance between this radical identity of the lived human. What I take Marx and others to be trying to get at when they attempt to conceive of a human beyond a set of attributes, which, too often, um, uh, which they too often get to through a simple subtraction, or through a universalism that always says too much, and so begins to mark out which people are real humans and which are not, which I take to be a kind of secularized, <coughs> apophatic, or cataphatic theoanthropology in different forms. Um, 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 what, what I take Marx then to be getting at is, is trying to get towards this thing that is, is generic. But precisely they fail because for them the generic becomes the universal, it becomes the gener uh, generali what is generalizable. 
but the ger generic is not the universal. Uh, like secularity is not secularism. It is indifference, not from the outside, but manifest by the practices themselves, or what we might call dissimilar uh, messianity. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>